0: Some of you may know the name Judy Anderson. She was daughter of uh, covenant missionaries in the 50s. She grew up in what was known as as the old Congo then. Things have changed a lot uh, in terms of leadership and governments since those days. But she recalls as a little girl a celebration that was held in uh, the area where the parents were working, and it was celebrating the 100th anniversary of missionaries coming to that particular part of the Congo. She said it was typical African celebration. It was an all-day event. It started at sunrise, and it went all the way until sunset, food and music and speeches and whatnot. She says, near the end of the day, a very old man asked if he could come and speak to the gathered crowd. He stood up and he said, there's something I know that no one else knows, and I'm soon going to die, and if I don't tell you, then I will take this to the grave with me. He proceeded to tell them 100 years ago when the first missionaries came to our people, we had never heard of their God or of their book or had seen anyone who had looked anything like them. Our people didn't know whether to believe what they had to say or not. So our leaders got together. They devised this plan. And the test was that they would poison one of them and see how everybody reacted. He said, we were doing this to find out the credibility of these newcomers. So what ensued was, one day a little girl got sick. Parents thought it was an ordinary illness, but they could do nothing. Nothing in the missionary medical book that they brought along seemed to cover this situation. Their daughter was just a child, a preschooler. She got sicker and sicker, and she died. They thought they had come to establish a community and said they were establishing a cemetery. A few weeks later, a husband And another family got sick. Similar sickness. He just got sicker and sicker and they couldn't do anything for him. And he died. And then the wife of a third couple and another child. Until, as this old man explained it, they all died. His people watched how each missionary died. And they decided that the message must be true. It was then, that this old man said that he and his people decided to follow Jesus. I am stunned by a story like that. Obviously, none of us sitting here has been called to martyrdom for Jesus, at least not yet. But each one of us here who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ has been called to die in another way. Death to self. You remember the words of Jesus, that anyone who would be his follower would have to deny themselves, take up their cross, that is ultimately an instrument of death, and then follow Jesus. So that is a death to self that each person who follows Jesus must inflict upon himself or herself. And honestly, I think that Martyrdom might be the easier way to go. Because death to self, death to my desires, death to my agenda, death to the things that I want, according to Jesus, it has to happen every day if I am counting myself as his follower. Many times a day, many times a day, we have to look in the mirror face ourselves honestly and say, you and all that your heart desires that's contrary to the kingdom of God must die. Wow. What we learned from Paul at the beginning of this body in Christ series in Romans 12 is that he feels the same way. The exhortation, you remember, to present our bodies as the people of God. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it is motivated on a daily basis by the fact that we understand that we are undeserving recipients of the amazing grace of God to us in Christ. And so, for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus... We need to always be asking how we're doing with this self-denial, this self-death thing. And I think Judy's story that she tells is a reminder of a very significant truth. And, And that is this, that there are always those who are watching how Christians live their lives. We may not be aware of it. We may not know them. But they are. There are always others who are are watching those who claim to be his followers, and our lives, consequently, become a witness for Jesus. And it's either credible or it's not, based on how we die to self. So, followers of Jesus, how are we doing in this self-death thing? How are you doing? How how am I doing? We we are being watched. And and what are people seeing as a result of watching our lives? What we are hoping for in this series is that those who watch our lives see a group of people who are committed to being what we are calling a healthy missional church. And that that is a church that quite simply is pursuing Christ with passion and pursuing his mission in the world with passion. This is one of those duh moments when I really think about it. It it just makes sense. What else would a church do? Well, unfortunately, a lot of things. A lot of silly things. Dare I say that churches get sidetracked. They forget who they, they belong to. They forget what it is that they were called into existence for. And God's people, as, as a local church, they end up saying and doing some of the dumbest things. Forgive me if that sounds negative. But it seems to me <laughs> that the people of God, who are by definition the church, which was founded by Jesus. It was his idea from the start, and it belongs to Jesus. The church is his. Scripture tells us that he's the head of that church. Doesn't it seem reasonable to you that those of us who are part of that organization, who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, ought to be more concerned about what he wants from us than what we want from him? And am I missing the point here? Okay, so it is fairly reasonable, you think? All right. And evidence that what we say we believe is really how we live our lives. Yeah. And we want to live our lives in such a way that people will encounter the spirit of Jesus Christ when they are with us. That is what the church is called to do, to be the presence of Christ in the world. That is why it exists. And so we have spent time in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, looking at those texts that that refer to the church, the people of God, as the body of Christ in the world. Now, Jesus has left the earth and his people remain, and they are his body, they are his presence in the world. And I hope, hope, hope that what has become abundantly clear, if you've been with us in this series, is that... God intends for his people to live their lives in absolute isolation and independence from one another. Right? Okay. You have gotten that along the way somewhere. Man, he intends for us to be interdependent, to to be linked, to live our lives together because together is better than alone in God's economy. And as God exists, and we've seen this together, as God exists in this eternal community, Father, Son, and Spirit, so those of us who are redeemed and have been recreated in Christ, we are tended, intended to live our lives together so that we can grow into maturity as followers of Jesus. I need you, and you need me. It's such a bummer, but it's the way that it is. It just goes against everything that we, that we want to live for. But that's the way it is. And we've seen, haven't we, that God loves diversity. God loves great diversity. Diversity drives us nuts. Diversity makes us uncomfortable. Diversity challenges us. God loves it. And we've seen in those texts that God has put people together just the way that he wants them. And the divine exhortation is, figure it out and live with it. Because that's the way the creator wants it. So he loves diversity. And he calls us to live our lives together with our different personalities, with our different abilities. He even gives special gifts to the people who are a part of his body. And those gifts are to be used for the health and the life and the growth of God's people together. And community is messy. Oh, it's messy. And it's so much easier to avoid it. But if we avoid community, we cannot grow into maturity as followers of Christ. It is messy, it is hard. But when it is done well, we grow. And folks who are watching the people of God in the world become convinced, some of them, that this Jesus thing is the real deal. So this morning, we're going to begin sort of a part two in this Body of Christ series. We're going, to, we're going to stay here until the end of the summer, which don't worry, that sounds like an eternity, but it's only about five Sundays. And we're going to uh, continue on in the Romans 12 text, using that as our primary text. We started at the beginning, kind of worked our way through the first eight verses, and And as you've been studying along and probably reading that some on your own, you realize that there's sort of a a sequence. It's kind of logical as you follow that along. It almost feels like when you jump into verse 9 of of Romans 12, that it's it's sort of a a laundry list. It's almost like Paul is just kind of throwing these things together. But I think it's important to remember, as we know, that the New Testament letters are always responses to... God's people living somewhere who have expressed concerns or uh, from whom the writer has heard things that concern him. And so Paul is addressing the Romans and he's throwing out some exhortations that tie very closely into the first eight verses that he's talked about in terms of being the body of Christ. I think what I find so uncanny is how as we get into these further, how pertinent they are to us. Living so many hundreds of years later, the culture in which we live, I think, presents a lot of the same challenges that the culture in which the Roman believers found themselves living. So I've been kind of thinking about this as holy behavior, if you will. Holy means, simply, separate or distinct to be holy is to be set apart from the norm or what is normal. And so Paul, I think, is, is going to offer to us some exhortations in the remaining part of Romans chapter 12 that if God's people will, will give themselves to living these, these things out, they will be set apart. They will be set apart. They will be different. They will be identified as, as distinct maybe even weird, but that's a part of the territory. And as we effectively live those things out together, it will call attention to God as we live our lives together in interdependence. I I don't know if I have told all of you this story. Briefly, years ago, on a mission trip in college, there was a young man who who, became, who, was, who was, we met in Europe, who was traveling as a, as a Mormon missionary and, and doing some study for the Mormon church. And, and through a series of events, God put us together with him, particularly one of the members of our team, and he made a commitment to follow Christ. It was just, it was so much fun how it came about. And the first question that he asked my friend Jim was, are there more of you that believe this? I thought that was so telling. Are there more of you that believe this? And Jim said, well, yes. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there are. There were, there were about 20 of us that had converged on this one city in Germany because we were doing like this midsummer retreat sort of meeting together to tell stories and to pray and recharge and take off again. Are there more of you? That's life together and, and dependence upon one another. So let's stand together and read the remaining verses of Romans chapter 12. Beginning with verse 9, we go to the end. Here we go together. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think you are superior. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. A bit of a laundry list, and yet I think they are very particular to where the Roman Christians were living their lives, and they fit where we are living our lives. Paul is is purposeful in this, and I don't think it's an accident that he begins the laundry list, if I can call it that, with love. Love for one another. And he says, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. So, turn to someone and ask them, what is sincere love? See what your neighbor thinks. What is sincere love? Okay. What'd your neighbor think? Or what did you tell your neighbor? What is sincere love? Not wanting something back. Okay. What else? It has to be truthful. Okay. Ah. Sincere love is marked by action. It's unconditional. I don't do that well. It's a choice. Okay. The ability to protect somebody from harm. Okay. I think that's so profound. Yes. Did you hear that? Means I'm going to love you even if you're doing things that I don't approve of. It's the hardest thing for us as people to do. Because, quite frankly, you're so stinking unlovable, and I'm not. <laughs> That's so often what, what drives our hearts. I, I can remember the first time I heard my daughter Kelsey years ago end a phone call with, Love you. Is she talking to a boy? That was a concern to me. I soon realized that she ended all of her phone calls that way. Yes, I was listening more closely to them when I had the chance. I was no longer concerned because it didn't mean anything, it was just words. You know, love you at the end of a conversation, did not commit her to a thing. They were just words that were kind of just a warm, friendly, you're my friend, signing off now. When Paul says that love must be sincere, he's not talking about love you. But that's the way that a good majority of us live our lives. He's talking about love that is active. Sincere love takes certain actions and it restrains from certain actions. The word that Paul uses for sincere is, in the original language, a word that meant hypocrisy. Love must be without hypocrisy. In the ancient Greek theater, a hypocrite was an actor. person who was on stage. They were someone on stage that they were not in real life. Paul is saying, God's people must not be acting. They must not say one thing and do another. Their words and their actions need to be consistent. When it comes to love, my friends, and you know this, it is more than words. Talk is cheap. Talk is always cheap. We can say I love you till the cows come home, but if love doesn't have action, love means nothing. If you say that you love someone, Your love is proved or demonstrated by its actions. That's how God loves. God's love for sinful, broken people, somehow, mystery of mysteries, moved his divine, insanely loving heart to do what was necessary to draw broken people back to himself. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Boy, there's a novel idea. Love gives. Love gives what others need. You know, John says in in his first letter at the end of the New Testament, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how God showed his love among us. Chapter 4, 1 John. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And John goes on to say that the person who professes love for God but does not love, and he specifically says, a brother or sister in Christ Jesus, that person is a liar and they do not love God. Yikes. So it's no accident that Paul starts with love for one another because it, 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 it's, it's the measure of, of genuine faith. And it's the source of, of greatest witness for God. We've seen that over the years in John 13 and John 17. 17th century English Puritan John Owen said it this way. I love this. He says, let none pretend that they love the brethren. And I guess we would include the in as well. Let none pretend that they love brethren the brethren in general, and love the people of God and love the saints while their love is not fervently exercised towards those who are in the same church with them. Christ, he says, will try your love at the last day by your deportment in that church wherein you are. We must understand, my brothers and sisters, this is serious. If our love is not sincere, that is, if our love for one another, the love that we say that we have or that we express, if it is not accompanied by action, it's really not love. To call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and not love one another as Christ has loved us is grossly inconsistent and offensive to God. Which is why Paul follows it with the next exhortation, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I'd never thought about this before, but this week as I was studying this text, these two statements really cling together. They hold together. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The evil that Paul has in mind in this particular context is whatever it is that keeps me from loving you as God has loved me. And you know what that is most of the time? It's me. What keeps me from loving you, as I should, is me. And what keeps you from loving me and one another is you. Paul is saying, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be willing to look at those things in our lives that stand in the way of sincere love. Not only is our active love for one another an indicator of the genuineness of our faith in Christ, but it's also, I think as Lori was suggesting, the most difficult thing to do. We've talked about this. If I'm going to love you with a sincere love, that means I'm going to act on your behalf. And that means that, that I am going to have to give up time and Resources and energy in order to do that. Paul is talking here, I think about living sacrifices again, because that's that's what a living sacrifice is able to do. Remember, we talked about a living sacrifice is not a one-and-done, it's 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 daily, it's constant. And he tied that to the renewing of our minds. If the sacrifice is still alive, that means our brain is still alive and it's still working and the Spirit of God has given us the ability to think in a new way. And thinking in a new way results in marveling at God's grace for us in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying in this Romans text, God's people have the ability to think differently. We have the ability to die to self and to put others first. We have the ability to recognize selfishness and pride and self-absorption for the evil that they are. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. What is good? Well, the good in this text is sincere love for one another. The good in this text is when love is demonstrated in actions and sacrifice. Anything that keeps us from that is not love. Period. So, away we go for the next few Sundays. Exploring the the holy behaviors that, that Paul lays out for us. I think foundational is the sincere love. And a recognition that there is something in all of us that kind of keeps that at a distance because in our really honest moments, we probably, like ourselves, care for ourselves, look out for ourselves more than we do one another. And that's a part of that growing in that mentality of making it about we and us and not making life about me and myself. So that's where we're going to go in the next few Sundays together.